Jeremiah chapter 30, beginning in verse 12. Jeremiah 30, verse 12. For thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. There is no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. All your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you. For I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. Why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. I have done these things to you. Therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder. And all who prey upon you, I will make a prey. For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord, because they called you an outcast, saying, this is Zion. No one seeks her. Thus says the Lord. Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy on his dwelling places. The city shall be built upon its own mound and the palace shall remain according to its own plan. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. Their children also shall be as before and their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. Their nobles shall be from among them and their governor shall come from their midst. Then I will cause him to draw near and he who shall approach me for who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. In the latter days, you will consider it. Jeremiah, remember, is writing either during... The Babylonian siege, the final siege on Jerusalem, or immediately afterwards, the people who are under siege in Jerusalem from the Babylonian armies are seeing a day of trial and tribulation. But the Bible teaches that in the future, there will be a special time of trial and judgment that will come upon the earth. And God has revealed these things to Jeremiah in a dream. Perhaps you haven't gotten there yet, but in Jeremiah chapter 31, if you just peek ahead just a bit and turn the page to Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 26, it says, after this, I awoke and looked around and my sleep was Sweet to me. Jeremiah is having a dream and he is having visions in his dreams. Jeremiah has already spoken of a day of restoration, a day when the captives would return home to the land and to the Lord in verses one through three. We're given a glimpse of a time of great tribulation. It's also called the time of sorrow or the time of Jacob's trouble in verses four through seven. Jeremiah also saw a day of salvation. And deliverance from the bitter bondage of enemies and the coming of the Messiah. A Messiah is going to come and he is going to be a direct descendant of David, it says in verses 8 through 11. And in the vision, Jeremiah sees a day that there's going to come a day 
where there is both spiritual healing and physical healing, all of the pain and all of the darkness and all of the emptiness and all of the sorrows and all of the sores are being restored. He sees a day of great blessing in verses 18 through 20, a day of extraordinary leadership in the future through God's Messiah, Jesus Christ, in verses 21 through 22. And then the chapter ends with an urgent warning to every generation. And this special day, this special day in the future, this day of judgment, this day of calamity, it goes by many names in the Bible. It's called the day of the Lord. It's called the indignation. It's called the day of God's vengeance. It's called the day of Jacob's trouble, the time of trouble like never before in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. It's called the 70th week in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. It's called the time of the end in Daniel chapter 12, verse 9. It's called the hour or the great day of his judgment in Revelation 14, 7. It's called probably its most famous name, the one you know it by best. The end of this world in Matthew chapter 13, verses 40 and 49. And of course, in many places, it's called the Great Tribulation in Matthew 24, 21. A lot of people ask me a lot of questions about the Great Tribulation. They ask me about the chronology. They ask me about the time. They ask me about the events, but very few people ask me why. Why is there going to be a great tribulation? Why is there going to come a time when God is going to reckon all things, that he is going to reconcile all things, that he is going to judge all things? The Bible teaches to harvest the crop that's been sown. And I need you to understand something. Remember, the Bible says over and over again, what a person sows, that also they will reap. But there's been a great sowing and a great reaping that will take place. God has sown and Satan has sown and the children of God have sown and the enemies of God have sown. And so the Bible teaches to harvest the crop that has been sown throughout the ages, to harvest the crop sown by God, sown by Satan, sown by humanity, to prove the falseness of the devil's claim, to prepare a great martyred multitude for heaven, to pre prepare a great living multitude for the millennium, to punish the Gentiles, to purge Israel, and then to prepare the earth for its coming. That's why. If you need more reasons, I can give you more. But I would think that that would be enough. So remember, it's a day of physical and spiritual healing. Look again at verse 12. For thus says the Lord, your affliction is incurable. Your wound is severe. The metaphor, the image that Jeremiah sees is a soldier who has entered into battle. And if you've ever been in a conflict, and if you've ever seen war, and you've ever seen injury, perhaps you've seen what a mortal wound or a fatal wound looks like. The Lord reveals that there's going to come a time when God will provide healing, but sin has taken its toll on the people. And the image that Jeremiah receives is an incurable wound, and there's no human cure that's available for this wound. The people's case is hopeless. And so the wound and the incurable affliction, the severe affliction becomes a type and a picture of sin. The Bible teaches that sin weakens the body in John 5.14. It impairs the mind. You'll remember in Daniel chapter 4, verse 28, in his pride and in his arrogance, 
King Nebuchadnezzar pictured this world that had been delivered into his hand and he failed to give God honor and he failed to give God praise. And the king of Babylon imagined just for a moment that the world was the world because he had made it that way. And God afflicted him in his brain and he had to eat grass like a cow. Sin impairs the mind and it weakens the body and it robs the soul because the Bible says that the wages of sin is death in Romans 6.23. It mars the spirit. It deceives and darkens our understanding. Sin deafens our spiritual sense and it causes us to forget the Lord in Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 8 verse 14. Sin cripples the memory. It causes men to turn from the truth it says in 2 Timothy chapter 4 verses 3 through 4. So no wonder this reoccurring image takes place in the Bible. Sin affects our mind and our body and our soul and our spirit. And so the Lord says in verse 13, there's no one to plead your cause that you may be bound up. You have no healing medicines. The idea is that the kind of illness that they are experiencing is a, is a type of an illness where there's no cure. Not even the most capable attorney, attorney can plead their case. You probably have heard about attorneys who say, I'll take any case, no matter how hopeless. But you know what? It doesn't mean he's going to win the case. Not even the most capable attorney is going to be able to plead the case. No miracle of medicine. There's no wonder drug. There's no hope or cure on the horizon, the Lord says. In verse 14, it says, all your lovers have forgotten you. They do not seek you, for I have wounded you with the wound of an enemy, with the chastisement of a cruel one, for the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. So who are Judas' lovers? Everyone they trusted, other than the true and the living God. They trusted the false gods, and they failed them. They trusted their own mind and they trusted their own heart and they trusted their own conceit and they trusted their own arrogance. The people trusted false gods and the people trusted foreign governments. And they all let them down because in the day of judgment. There was no one there. And for human judgment. There will come a time when each and every person will stand before God and your mother will not be there and your brother will not be there and your father will not be there and your friend will not be there and your lover will not be there. And the people who teased you and taunted you and then tormented you, the people who told you that you didn't really need to know God or love God, that you didn't need to know Jesus or serve Jesus, none of them will be there with you as you stand before the true and the living God and you give an account of your life. Sin is described in the Bible like the uncleanness of a dog in Proverbs 26:11, like the fierceness of a leopard in Daniel chapter 7 verse 6. Sin has all the subtlety of a servant serpent in Matthew 23:33. It's the ravenings of a lion in Psalm 22:13. And in the New Testament the Bible says that your enemy the devil like a lion goes around seeking whom he can swallow whole. And so, it says, for I've wounded you with the wound of an enemy. Here's the idea. God judged in the same way that a person who, who would judge is not a friend, but an enemy. With the chastisement of a cruel one. Here's the idea. God didn't hold any punches. He didn't make any accommodations. He didn't say, surely you will be more merciful and more generous because I'm a descendant of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, because I'm the offspring of David, because of of for some reason I'm going to be given preferential treatment. But the answer is no. 
And the Lord says, why do you cry about your affliction? Your sorrow is incurable because of the multitude of your iniquities, because your sins have increased. I've done these things to you. The emphasis is on God's judgment because of the people's sin. And their affliction and their sorrow and their hopeless situation is one in which they have brought on themselves. Remember, for those of you who've been following Jeremiah, because of the persistent rebellion, because of the persistent disobedience, because of the persistent refusal to believe God's prophets and believe God's word. You know that we're told that sin brought judgment on Satan. His pride will one day doom him to hell. Sin brought spiritual death to human beings. Sin brought disorder and pain to nature, it says in Romans chapter 8, verses 19 through 22. Sin produces a loss of light, it says in 1 John 1, 6. A loss of joy, Psalm 51, 12. A loss of righteousness, 1 John 3, 4. The loss of love, the loss of fellowship, the loss of confidence, possibly even the loss of health and the loss of life. You see, there's one word that you should always associate with sin. Loss. Loss. You see, sin will extend the invitation. You can have, but it's a lie each and every time. And so the Bible makes it abundantly clear that God's plan and God's purposes are going to be fulfilled. In verse 16, it says, therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured. And all your adversaries, every one of them shall go into captivity. Those who plunder you shall become plunder and all who prey upon you, I will make prey. Here's God's statement. It is, I'm going to use the Babylonian Empire. I'm going to use the armies of Babylon. I'm going to use the war, the famine, the pestilence and the affliction to discipline you. And then I'm going to discipline them. What? What? Because the Babylonian army... They weren't doing, let me just help you understand something. The Babylonian army had no idea that they were instruments in the hands of God in order to bring about discipline. And your mom, your dad, your brother, your sister, your family, your friends have no idea that God will use them to be instruments of discipline. Bill Maher on HBO has no idea that he's being used as an instrument in God of God to discipline the, the naysayers, the gainsayers, the people who mock and torment and persecute. They have no idea that God uses them. They're completely unaware of it. Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven, the measure you give will the measure you'll get. The argument hinges on therefore, therefore, all those who devour you shall be devoured. Here's the idea. God loves Zion. God loves Israel. God loves Judah. God loves Jerusalem. God loves these people. But God's forced to discipline them and punish them because of their sin. Did you know that God loves human beings as well? But sometimes he's forced to discipline them and punish them because of their rebellion and because of their their sin and their disobedience. But remember what we've already learned, that the chastisement of God and the discipline of God isn't in order to bring us to a place of brokenness forever, but rather of restoration and, and hope. Because remember what the Bible says, that he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Remember what the Bible says, therefore, humble yourself in the in the eyes of the Lord and he will lift you up. God loves Zion, but Zion because of her sins. And Zion, remember, is, a, is a, another name for Jerusalem and for Judah. The Lord will use the disciplinary agents who are unaware that they're acting as God's agents. And the agents, because here's the idea, they're led away by their own greed and their own need for power. 
And because they are motivated by greed and because they're motivated by need, guess what? They're going to get what they deserve because the Bible remains true. God is not mocked. What a person sows, that also they will reap. So, the the people have sinned to the point of no return. In other words, here's the idea. They had rebelled and disobeyed and sinned in such a way that the inevitable consequences of rebellion and sin would manifest themselves in their life. But the Lord hints at a time when God will personally execute judgment on all of those who have oppressed his people and all of those who have persecuted his people and everyone who has mocked, oppressed, persecuted, incarcerated and murdered the people of God will face a terrifying judgment. The persecutors themselves will become oppressed and plundered. And destroyed. And in verse 17 it says, For I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord. Now remember what he said earlier. You're sick and there's no cure. You have a disease and there's no cure. But apparently there is a cure. Apparently there's one cure. I will restore health to you and heal you of your wounds, says the Lord. What? The same God who disciplined. The same God who brings a rod will also bring righteousness. And the same one who brings discipline will bring delight. And the same God, who creates a mechanism, will also create a mechanism of wholeness and wellness. This is an amazing promise. The Lord will heal both the physical and the spiritual wounds. He will bind up the brokenhearted. He will forgive them and heal their souls. He will deliver their bodies from oppression and attack from the enemies. And at the close of the day of the Lord, God will deliver his people from all suffering. And so all of a sudden the clouds break and all of a sudden the sun begins to shine. Because guess what? There is a mechanism for forgiveness. There is a mechanism of hope and there's a a mechanism where what's dirty can become clean and what's empty can become full. How's he going to do that? How's he going to save his people? Look what he says. Because they called you an outcast saying, this is Zion, no one seeks her. Do you understand what's happening? The people of God The children of God are being rightly disciplined for their disobedience. But even in the midst of the discipline, God says, I love them. I care for them. I don't want to see a permanent end to them. This is Zion. No one seeks her. The enemies have said no one really cares and no one's there to really help. And all of a sudden a voice whispers in the darkness and says, I'm here. And I still love you. And I'm still willing to forgive you. And I'm still willing to reconcile you. And I'm still willing to call you to myself. It says, one day, in the book of Revelation chapter 21, one day, death will cease. The curse will cease. There will be no more crying and there will be no more death. There is going to come a time when God is going to create a new heaven, the Bible says, and a new earth in Revelation chapter 21, verse 4. And people might be thinking, well, that's all well and good. And it's well and good that there's hope and there's health and there's healing in the distant future and in eternity future. But what about right now? Is there healing now? Is there forgiveness now? Is there restoration now? Is there wholeness and wellness now? The good news? Yes. For everyone who trusts the Lord. For everyone who turns from their sin and turns to the Lord. We're encouraged to seek the Lord. 
Do you realize we're encouraged even when we find ourselves in a day of trouble, in a time of fear, in a place of sickness? The Bible says he will heal us or he'll give us strength to endure. God will either lighten the load or he'll give you bigger shoulders to carry the load. If he lightens the Lord load, hallelujah. If he makes your shoulders a little bit bigger, it could be that one day he'll call you to divide the sorrow with someone else to bear their burden, just like he's borne yours. We're encouraged to seek the Lord. And by the way, true repentance, remember, consists of the heart that is broken for sin and then broken from sin. True repentance consists of a heart that's broken for sin and broken from sin. In other words, it's where your sin wells up inside of you and you can't stand it anymore. It is so disgusting that even you can't take it anymore. And you want to turn from it. Here's the message in the opening part. Jeremiah says, either give up sin or give up hope. It seems odd that it should be that simple, but it really is that simple, isn't it? Give up sin or give up hope. Here's what the Bible encourages you to do. Give up the sin. Embrace the hope. And because guess what? The wages of sin have never been reduced. Can you imagine the Bible saying, hey, look, I know that the wages of sin has been death, but guess what? We're having a half off sale today. It's half life and half death. No, the wages of sin remain death. And by the way, sin forsaken is the surest sign of sin forgiven. Sin forsaken is the surest sign of sin forgiven. And so there's a day of healing and there's a day of restoration. And the children of Israel were meant to be filled with the knowledge that the pain and the sorrow and the captivity and the isolation would one day come to an end. And then he describes a great day of blessing in verse 18 through 20. The Lord gives Jeremiah a vision of a great day of blessing. In verse 18 it says, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring back the captivity of Jacob's tent and have mercy on his dwelling places, the city shall be built upon its own mound. When the people are delivered from captivity, they're going to return to the promised land. And I need you to understand something. What Jeremiah is saying is that this isn't a metaphor and it isn't a symbol. It doesn't mean that one day you'll get to go to Colorado or Nauvoo, Illinois or Salt Lake City, Utah. He's talking about the children in captivity and Babylon who are literally, really, not figuratively or metaphorically, they're going to get to return to Jerusalem. And why is that important to you? Because remember, captivity becomes a type and a picture of sin. And what does the promised land become for you? The promised land. You see, you don't occupy a promised land. You occupy a promised person. The person of Jesus. And when you occupy Jesus, you occupy everything that needs to be occupied. And so the Lord gives Jeremiah a vision of a day of blessing when the people are delivered to the promised land. And, and here is the idea. When you are in pain and when you are in sorrow and when you are in sin and when you are in captivity, all you can think about is the pain and, and the jail and the isolation and the darkness. And so Jeremiah gives a vision of a life of blessing beyond your wildest imagination. 
Jeremiah points to four blessings specifically. Number one, the city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. The city will experience the rebuilding of houses and a palace. And once again, it's meant to inspire assurance that Israel will be restored and the people will one day experience prosperity. That's what it means in verse 18. And number two, that God's people will be filled with a spirit of thanksgiving and joy. That's what it means in verse 19. Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving. And the voice of those who make merry, I will multiply them and they shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. And so number three, the population of God's people will increase. Why is this important? When the Babylon, when the Assyrians came and wiped out the northern tribes, there was a massacre. When the Babylonians came and wiped out Judah and Jerusalem, the people were massacred. During the time of Persia, remember, Haman is trying to herd the Jews and kill them. This is what we talked about before. Remember, I talked about the fact that God has a plan and a purpose for the Jew. And over the centuries, there's been this murderous plan to exterminate them. And so there is this plan to increase and not decrease. War will decrease the ranks. Famine will decrease the ranks. Disease will cut the population down. So the Bible is envisioning a time of peace and prosperity and growth. So the population of God's people will increase. So do the math here. The city of Jerusalem will be rebuilt. God's people will be filled with a spirit of thanksgiving and joy. The population will increase. And in verse 20, it says that the children of Israel will enjoy not just a normal life, but an abundant life in established communities. In verse 20, their children also shall be as before. And their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. So think about it. There is a literal restoration of Jerusalem. It says, I will bring the captivity of Jacob's tents and have mercy. And in in the middle of the sentence in verse 18, it says the city shall be built upon its own mound. You need to understand. The children of Israel in Babylon are not going to be repatriated to Tyre or Greece or Russia or China or Britain or the United States. It's going to be in their own land and in their own city. The city shall be built upon its own mound. I got to tell you how important this is. It's its own footprint. It's not a symbol or a metaphor. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you are amazed that it's there. Because there's been a continual commitment to its destruction. We talked about it last week. The Romans will destroy it in 70 A.D. and then rebuild it as Aelia Capitolina. In the 3rd century, it will be rebuilt again. In the 4th century, it will be rebuilt again. In the 8th century, it's going to be destroyed by the invading Muslims, and then it's going to be rebuilt again. During the Crusades, it's going to be destroyed and rebuilt again. And then it's going to be rebuilt and again during the Ottoman Empire. Layer upon layer, destruction upon destruction, building upon building. It says... Then out of them shall proceed thanksgiving and the voice of those who make merry. I will multiply them, it says in verse 19. They shall not diminish. I will also glorify them and they shall not be small. This is what I'm talking about. There's going to be a time of thanksgiving and joy. Remember what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 20. Giving thanks always for all things. He's speaking to Christians, but the reality is it's Christians in pain and Christians in sorrow and Christians who are suffering. Did your granny ever sing songs to you? My grandma did. She would sing, thank God for dirty dishes. They have a tale to tell. While others may go hungry, 
We've eaten very well. With home and health and happiness, I shouldn't want to fuss by the stack of evidence God's been very good to us. That's, then she'd make me wash the dishes. You look at the dishes and you see sorrow. She looks at the dishes and see, she sees joy. You look at the dishes and you see drudgery. She looks at the dishes and is reminded that there's something on those dishes that we get to eat. Their children also shall be as before. And their congregation shall be established before me. And I will punish all who oppress them. What parent doesn't want to see their child safe? And so the Lord gives an image of a Judah and a Jerusalem dwelling in security and safety. A place where children can play in the streets without fear of a suicide bomber or a terrorist attack. I spent some time in the city of Jerusalem. I've watched children march off to school. But that time isn't here yet, is it? Do the people of Judah and do the people of Jerusalem worry about their children's safety? At this very moment, they do. We live in a world where some communities fear shootings and kidnappings and violence and oppression and lawlessness. But Jeremiah envisions a world where the children are safe. And when Jesus comes and he establishes his rule and reigns, he will eliminate oppression and he will avenge wicked behavior. And so all of a sudden, the veil is taken away and an image is given of righteous leadership. In verses 21 and 22, their children also shall be as before. Verse 21, their nobles shall be from among them and their governor shall come from their midst and I will cause him to draw near and he shall approach me. For who is this who pledged his heart to approach me, says the Lord? The Lord promises a day of unparalleled leadership. Once in a great while, a great leader will come along. Who knows what today is? Anybody? February 22nd. What? Who was born on February 22nd? George Washington. A great leader. Today. It was his birthday today. Once in a lifetime. You might get a George Washington once in a lifetime. You might get an Abraham Lincoln. But most of the time, we're saddled with weak leaders and flawed leaders and ungodly leaders. Remember, I told you, I want a candidate who has Romney's money and hair, who has Santorum's sense of morality and decency, and who's smart like Newt without all of the baggage. Give me a candidate that I can vote for. Give me someone who will tell us that it's okay to love God and it's okay to love the Lord and it's okay to believe that the Bible is true. Give me someone who will say, I'm not going to, I am not going to create a mechanism where you can kill your children in their womb. Give me a leader who will promise. And then deliver righteousness. It says in verse 21, their nobles shall be from among them and their governors shall come from their midst. Here is the idea. In the last days, God will give his people leaders. And remember who he's talking to. He's talking to the Jewish people and he's talking about a Jewish leader. Once again, we're reminded that the Messiah will be a Jew. Sorry, Sun Young Moon, not Korean. I don't have anything against Korean people. Sorry, Mary Baker Glover Eddie. 
the Messiah will be a Jew. Sorry, David Koresh. Sorry, every would-be Messiah who says that they're Messiah. The Messiah will be a Jew, and their governor shall come from their midst, not a foreign-born leader. And he won't just simply be a king. He will be a priest. Look what it says. For, for who is this who pledges his heart to approach me? You know what this is? This is the language of the high priest. This is the language of the person who is allowed to draw near to God. It's not a foreign-born leader. It's a Jew. He will be both a king and he will be a priest. This is the language of sovereignty and mediator. This person has access to God. As king, he rules over his people. And as priest, he draws them close to God. Isn't that the ideal leader? The one who doesn't so much lord it over you, but the one because of dignity and reality. This is the perfect king, the king who is always perfect in his judgment. And the leader who draws you close to the Lord, whoever the Messiah is, Jeremiah says. And by the way, we know who the Messiah is. It's Jesus. But here in Jeremiah, Jeremiah is saying, whoever this Messiah is, he is going to be the king and he is going to be a priest. And this is exactly what Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews argues. Whoever this Messiah is, he will have direct access to God because he can approach the Lord. Listen carefully. On the basis of his own righteousness. Is that you? Can you come to God on the basis of your own righteousness? Is there some dark spot? Is there some sin? Is there some failure? Is there some wickedness that prevents you from coming to God? All we like sheep have gone astray. We've each turned our own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Why? Because he could Because a perfect man, a sinless man, can approach God because he has no sin. And he is perfect. He can approach the Lord and he has no need for a mediator because he is the mediator. He has no need for anyone to crown him king because he is king and he represents the people before God. Who is this person? Who will make his appearance? And look what it says in verse 22. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Think about this. On the basis of the priest who is the king, God makes an amazing declaration that the people will be his people and that he will be their God. You know, it's one of the questions I get asked. It's one of the saddest questions I've ever been asked. Is God everybody's God? Well, in one sense, yes. Is there only one God? Yes. Is the one God, the true, the living, the self-existent God, the God who reveals himself in the Bible, is, is he everybody's God? Yeah. But does everybody acknowledge him as God? Will everyone turn to him and repent from their sin and subject themselves to him? In one sense, he's the God of everybody, but in one sense, he cannot be the God of everybody. Jesus, remember, he was he told the religious leaders in his own day who rejected him. You are of your father, the devil. Why did he say such horrible thing? The reason that Jesus gives is because they lied. They lied. They lied about him and they lied about his message and they lied about his ministry. Who else lies about the person of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus and the message of Jesus? The devil. The psalmist writes in Psalm 50, verse 15. Call upon me in the day of trouble. And I will deliver you. And you shall glorify me. Jacob is experiencing a time of trouble. How about you? Is this a time of trouble? 
The day of trouble eventually comes to everyone. And what we do in the day of trouble becomes the test of our character. What will you do in the day of trouble? Will you love him? Will you trust him? Will you cry out to him? Will you serve him? The Bible says in Psalm 55, 22, that we can cast our burden on him. We can cast our burden on the Lord and care and, and our cares upon the Lord. The Bible says, cast your care on me. Cast your care. He will sustain you. He will never let the righteous stumble. We have the plea of the Lord. Call upon me in the day of the trouble. We have the promise of the Lord. I will deliver you. And then we have the greatest benediction ever given to the soul. Believe him. Trust him. Praise him for the gift of life and sustaining life. Praise him for every blessing. Praise him for every good. Praise him for every perfect gift in the day of trouble. The Bible says, happy are the people whose God is the Lord. And the verse contains two prophecies concerning Jesus. The prophecies predict the Messiah who is king. Now, all of a sudden, you understand the reason why Matthew has to have a genealogy in the opening book of, of Matthew. In order for the Messiah to be a legitimate king, he has to be a direct descendant of David. And so how is he a priest? Well, before Moses, Abraham paid homage to Melchizedek, a king who was also a priest. The prophecies predict a Messiah who is the king who rules over God's people. And he predicts a mediator between God and the human race. No wonder the Bible says there's only one mediator between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Truth? Jesus rides into Jerusalem and they say, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they declare him king. And the next week, the religious leaders accuse him of treason, treachery, blasphemy. And do you remember the sign that hung over Jesus' head? This is Jesus who said that he's the king of the Jews. Or actually it said, this is Jesus the king of the Jews. And remember the religious leader said, don't say that. Rather say, he said he was the king of the Jews. And remember Pilate's incredible statement, what I've written, I've written. Did he ever have a chance to reign? Not if you call a cross a throne. Not unless you call a crown of thorns a crown. But will there come a time when the children of Judah and the children of Israel and the inhabitants of Jerusalem will look and see the one whom they pierced? Will there come a time when they will recognize Jesus as the genuine king and the genuine priest forever? The answer is yes. And in verse 23, look what it says. Behold, the whirlwind of the Lord goes forth with fury, a continuing whirlwind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. The warning, judgment's coming, just like the wind. And anyone who's caught outside will be caught in the wind. It will fall violently on the head of the wicked. And who are the wicked? Who are the wicked? The wicked includes all who have rejected the word of God and the word made flesh. Look at verse 24. The fierce anger of the Lord will not return until he has done it and until he has performed the intents of his heart. And look what it says in verse 24. In the latter days, you will consider it. Here's Jeremiah's promise. When the clock gets close to midnight, 
it will all start to make sense. What are the latter days? The last days. The final days. The approaching days. You know, someone has said, it's not what we eat, but what we digest that makes us strong. Not what we gain, but what we save that makes us rich. Not what we read, but what we remember that makes us learned. And not what we profess, but what we practice that makes us Christians. Wearsby, when he's summing up this chapter, writes, quote, The people of Judah and Jerusalem will experience terrible trials at the hands of the Babylonians. They will end up wearing a Gentile yoke, bearing the wounds caused by their sins and having endured the storm of God's wrath. But God would eventually deliver them, breaking the yoke, healing the wounds, bringing peace after the storm. All of this will be a foreshadowing of what will happen to the Jews in the end times as they grow, go through the tribulation to meet their Messiah King and enter into their king, into their kingdom. Has, is the storm just right around the corner? Or is the storm blowing hard right at this very moment? Is it just me? Or have you felt a bitter wind against your soul? I do believe the world grows colder every day. And the hearts of men are frozen by a fear they can't control. In a world that's filled with sorrow. And a future that seems like there's no tomorrow. And the need to see be beyond the icy grave to the one who saves. Messiah who comes, who is both king and priest, who forgives you and reconciles you to God. There's a reason why the Bible devotes so much of its information to the person of the Messiah and the message of the Messiah and the death of of the Messiah and the resurrection of the Messiah becomes because it's what becomes the basis for your freedom, forgiveness and hope next week. Jeremiah chapter 31. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. Lord, there is a bitter wind blowing right at this very moment. And Lord, we know that we can go with the wind or against the wind. But Lord, we pray, we pray, we pray, we pray that we would be sensitive and submissive, that, Lord, we would think about the promises and the reality that no matter how bleak and how dark, there is a light and there is a promise and there is a future for everyone who will place their confidence and trust in the Lord Jesus and Heavenly Father, I, I pray for that person who is hearing the invitation being extended even now. They hear a voice whispering in their ear, Can God forgive someone like me? Save someone like me? Release someone like me from bondage and captivity? Can God give Someone like me, freedom and hope and a future. And Heavenly Father, I pray that you'd speak to their heart right at this very moment. And that you would invite them to believe Jesus and to trust Jesus and to love Jesus and to turn from sin and to embrace the promises of God. In Jesus name. Amen.